You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lauren Gertman, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. I was in love. Puppy love. It was sophomore year in college, and the recipient of my affections had placed me squarely in the friend zone. One afternoon, she arranged for a group of us from the dorm to drive into the city to attend an electronics expo. We shopped and shopped and shopped for hours. Me dutifully carrying bags as my beloved burned through her cash and credit. By the time we returned to the dorms, my companion's arms were full of bags and purchases, and yet mine were empty. The girl, the only person who knew that my family's wealth far outstripped any of those in our small group, looked at me thoughtfully, and then said something I will never forget. You're a different sort of person, all of us fawning over our purchases, and you bought nothing. Not a thing. Years later, I barely remember the girl, her name, or what she meant to me, but her words still ring true. You see, I have little interest in buying things. I never have. Yet my guest today sees the exact opposite. A former addiction recovery counselor, she uses her skills and knowledge to help mitigate the destruction debt and unwise spending can bring to our lives. Lauren Grutman helps busy moms create financial freedom for their families by sharing simple, easy ways to take back control of their money, live within their means, and create the simpler, happier life they've always dreamed of. She is the author of The Recovering Spender, How to Live a Happy, Fulfilled, Debt-Free Life. Lauren Grutman, welcome to Earn and Invest. You're an ex-addiction recovery counselor. Do you consider money an illicit substance? Yeah, (laughs) I would say so. Thank you for having me. You know, when I'm looking at the way that people overspend and use spending as a coping mechanism, it's very similar to the way that people use alcohol and drugs and gambling as as a coping mechanism in their life as well. So yeah, I can I definitely see um shopping as as an you know, the same type of coping mechanism. I'm a physician and you're an addiction recovery counselor. Do you think chemically it's similar to like I'm thinking about the hit we get from an illicit drug as well as that kind of endorphin push we get from buying things. Do you think chemically the same thing is happening? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, you know, an endorphin rush of dopamine or serotonin. You know, we have these jolts of 
feel good chemicals that go through our brains when we make purchases. And then on the flip side, feelings of regret and remorse and shame and sadness, which then propel the behavior again. So it's the, it's the same thing, um, as, you know, as, as a drug or an, as, as an alcohol high. Uh, the only difference I, I think, you know, is that there's not a physical component of, of the addiction, you know, as, as if somebody is physically addicted to heroin or alcohol. Um, but I do think that there is a similar high that people get when they're shopping that they just can't seem to break the cycle. Yeah. In a sense, we don't get the spending withdrawals, right? When we start saving money or being frugal, we don't get a, a physiologic reaction. Right. So let's go back to your history. Tell us about being an addiction counselor. How did you get interested in that? Tell us a little bit about your background. I grew up in upstate New York in, you know, a middle class, normal family. Uh, I was one of four kids. I'm the second oldest. I have an older brother and two younger sisters. And my older brother, when he was younger, probably when he was 13 or 14, started experimenting with drugs. And he started getting into um, heavy drugs very early on. So by the age of 16, he was a heroin addict, and I watched his life crumble from the age of 16 to um, the age of 26 when his disease actually took his life. So when he was 26, he uh, committed suicide because of his addiction. He just couldn't get clean, and I think he became very hopeless. Um, So when I went to college, I always knew that I wanted to help people like my brother, and I didn't really know what that looked like. But when I went to college, I decided I fell in love with the criminal justice system. I went to school for the degree that I went for was called public justice, which is a mixture of criminal justice and psychology. And so I went to school for that. And right out of college, I got a job um, in a drug count or it's called drug court, which is a court system which helps addicts and alcoholics get back on their feet. So I got into that. And then from there, got trained as a counselor and went into drug and alcohol counseling right after that. And, you know, my brother was still alive and in active addiction, and I didn't really have a great relationship with him. I I just really wanted to help people, you know, and at that time, I didn't really, I guess, understand that I had a lot of addictive personalities as well growing up in the same family. And so it wasn't until later on in life and, you know, I saw my own spending addictions kind of come into play that I saw like, oh, I have a lot of the same, what we call in the addictions field, isms, right? I have a lot of the same isms that he did. I just had a different drug of choice. So that's how I got into the field. And um, I got out of the field when I started having kids, when I was pregnant with my first child. And that coincidentally was like the same time when um, my brother passed away from um, his addiction. I'm so sorry to hear about your brother. I'm wondering how it felt as you were connecting with this idea that maybe you have some of these same isms. Did you feel a connection between your behavior and his? Oh, definitely. I could see the uh, feeling of hopelessness for sure. When I started getting into a ton of debt and I started realizing that I had some internal demons within myself as well that I really wanted to, I, I felt like I could really relate a lot more to the struggles that he had gone through, for sure. 
when we talk about addiction, especially with, with illicit substances, we often talk about when people get to rock bottom, right? And mm -hmm. then life hopefully starts to change. Was there a rock bottom for you with your spending addiction? Yeah, actually, I talk about it in my book, um, the rock bottom that I had. When I came to my rock bottom, I was actually uh, driving a pink Cadillac, if you know what <laughs> um, company that is associated with. I do, I do. <laughs> so um, I had started with that company at the age of 24, and within 11 months, I had earned my pink Cadillac. Wow, and, that's impressive. That's really fast. Yeah, so I worked really hard to get it, but what people don't know is the sacrifice financially that you have to do to earn one of those cars. And so I won the pink Cadillac. I was living the dream, you know, as a director of that company. And what people didn't know is I was broke and I was in a lot of debt. Some of it from that, but some of it from just trying to play the part of what that looked like. And so I, I was shopping a ton. I was, you know, trying to look fancy to fit the role of that. I was not paying attention to how much money I was spending. Me and my husband at the time, we're now divorced, but me and my husband at the time, we bought a huge house and that was right at the, the height of the housing bubble. We bought it in, um, in 2006 and then the housing crash market crashed and our, our, we were all of a sudden like, you know, $40,000 under in our mortgage and it was too expensive for us. And I had to kind of come clean to him because I was managing all the finances at that time. And I had opened up a bunch of credit cards and I didn't share with him everything that I was spending. And I wasn't even really paying attention at the time. And I remember finally quitting that company and the, the pink Cadillac got towed away from <laughs> the driveway. Huh. And that was like my bottom, like, I remember feeling so ashamed that I had quit this company because I had put my, my identity in that, I think. And then on top of that, I took out all my credit card bills and I actually added them up. So I think a lot of people, when you're in this much debt, right, you, you have some sort of idea that you're in credit card debt, but you're not exactly sure what the number is. So I sat down and I added up the number and it was $40,000. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Like I had no idea. I knew I was in debt. I knew I was in a lot of debt. But there was something about adding it all up and seeing the grand total that just kind of took the wind out of me. And that was my my rock bottom. I think a lot of people experience this regardless of what they're facing. This moment where the blinders are released and they see life for how it is. And I'm always interested about what that first step is. Do you remember for you, like the first thing you said, okay, I'm at rock bottom. Here's how I start to begin my journey back upward. I think with anything, when you hit rock bottom, the first step is being completely honest with yourself. That's, it has to be the, I don't know what I'm doing. I thought I was doing a good job, but I'm, I'm clueless. And so getting really honest with myself and getting really honest with my spouse at the time was very, very key. Then from there, talking to somebody else about it, um, I signed up for a financial course. I you know, started working with somebody. 
I started going to counseling. I mean, that was a big piece for me is like therapy because I was using shopping as a coping mechanism. And I'm actually working on my second book right now. And it's all about this whole concept of just being addicted to more, like whatever that is, right? Being addicted to shopping or being addicted to scrolling through our phone or relationships or alcohol or drugs, you know, like as a society, we can be so addicted to whatever fills that void inside of us. And I definitely was in that boat where I would go from one thing to the next, the next, the next, you know, just to fill that void. And so therapy was a big piece of me learning how to stop my shopping addiction as well. Um, And then just learning and being, you know, setting my goal of like, why do I want to change my financial future and making that so prevalent in my life so that that anytime something that came up with my finances, like if I wanted a new purse or whatever, it's like, no, 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 like my why is greater than this purse. Like I want this. This is what I ultimately want. And then focusing more on that than the the material things. Now you were an addiction recovery specialist. So Mm. people who are having trouble with illicit substances could have come to you right back in the early 2000s. Correct. You, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, realized that you're at rock bottom with your spending. Back then, did you feel like the resources were available to you? I mean, you talked about counseling, et cetera, but was that an easy thing for you to find back then? Not really. I think that for me, you know, spending addiction was not something that was really talked about that, that I can recall being talked about very often. I don't even think that it was a name that I was aware of, to be honest. I just thought I sucked with money, Hmm. really. I just thought I'm just terrible with money. But when it came down to it was that I was using money as and spending as a coping mechanism to get outside of how I felt. And that's the difference, you know? Um, And so... Yeah, I didn't even know that that was a definition, you know, when I when I started through the journey to heal from it. Let's pivot over to America's debt addiction in general. Do we have the American dream wrong? I mean, is it misleading us? Well, I think I mean, I think so. And you know, what? unfortunately, I think the rise of social media and just it's not going away. You know, we we compare our insides to other people's outsides all the time. And so we want all the things and we want what the influencers are wearing and buying and shopping and the ease of just clicking one thing on Instagram and adding it to our cart and buying it. I mean, it's so easy to shop. We don't even have to leave our houses. So yeah, I think that, um, you know, we're a consumer culture and we're also a culture that doesn't slow down enough to think about why we're doing what we do. And so that's when I'm working with clients now, a lot of it is is a mindset shift of stop, just stop what you're doing and pause and think about why you're doing what you're doing And let's have a mindset shift because if we don't get what's right up here in the mind, the spending in the debt will never follow, right? We need to get really super clear about the mindset stuff so that we can actually successfully get out of debt and learn how to budget. Because if we don't work on that, we're never going to have success. I'm interested in this idea of mindset, specifically, how do we know that there's a problem? Like, is there a, a first sign that we can use? 
as a litmus test so we know that we have to start working on this? That's a great question. And I think it really starts with reactive spending. So are you buying things that you don't need when you don't have the money? Just plain and simple. Because a lot of a lot of what I see is people buying things just because they want it. Not because they need it, but because they want it. And I think the litmus test for anybody is, are you buying things based on a feeling? You know, want is a feeling. So I think people need to stop and pause. And, you know, I, I encourage people to budget, not so much because of how strict it is, but because it gives you a plan to take your feelings out of it. When you have a spending plan and a budget, it has nothing to do with feelings. You just write it down and that's what you do. Take feelings out of it. Anytime you spend based on a feeling, that's kind of a danger zone. I want to bring this back to the metaphor of addiction with substances. There are people who casually drink. There are people who Mm -hmm. casually use substances. And yet we wouldn't say that they have an addiction problem. Can the same be said for spending? Because as I hear you speaking, there's some very clear lines, right? Do I need this or do I want it? Am I doing it to make me feel good or is it a necessity? Can we be casual with our spending without it becoming addiction like that? Oh, definitely. I think so. And, you know, I'm proof that you can recover from this because that's, you know, I have this casual, you know, I can casually spend now and it's not an issue, right? Because I've set up these boundaries and I've trained myself over the past 15 years but I've also done the internal work, right? So the internal work for me when it comes to spending is realizing, I'll I'll give you a quick example of how this can play out in my life. And the reason why my book is called The Recovering Spender is because I always have to be on guard because I know that it could become an issue again for me. It's not recovered. So for example, if I go into a store and I am in a super elated, happy mood, usually that's when I will spend. I know that about myself. And I know physical things about myself that physical cues that happen to my body when I will spend a lot of money. Two things happen to me. I lick my lips a lot Hmm. and my, my palms are sweaty. And this is after over 15 years of therapy and working on things and being mindful when I am spending money of what happens to my physical being when I'm in like a spending mood. So when I go into a store, like one of my absolute favorite stores, I'm, I love home decorating. And so if I go into a home decor store, let's say around Christmas time, I'm like, I'm like a sucker, you know, for all things Christmas. <laughs> So I know if I start licking my lips and it's something that it's not, I don't do it on purpose. It just happens. I know I got to get out of there. So I pack up and I leave. And that's a choice that I make. So it's all about these choices and knowing your triggers and knowing the things that happen to you when you're about to be in a spending mood. So those are the things that I've learned about myself. Now, also other things like like somebody who you know, is an overeater and they absolutely love chocolate and they can't eat chocolate because if they eat chocolate, it leads them to eat peanut butter. And then that leads them to eat a Big Mac, you know, those kind of things. Like I could eat chocolate and never think about peanut butter or a Big Mac. So 
it really just goes to like whatever the personal person's triggers are. So I think that it's it it varies, you know, by by person by person. It's whatever the person is using as a crutch for that situation. As you describe your physiologic response to being in these situations, it kind of reminds me about how subconscious and almost Pavlovian this is. We're really good at putting value judgments on people like you're a bad person because you're spending or you're a bad person because you're in debt. But clearly for you, your body is responding on sub subconscious level that that isn't necessarily at the forefront of your brain while it's happening. Right. Yep. And it, it, it's like, it took me years to figure it out, but now that I've recognized it. And so when I'm, when I'm counseling people, cause I do one-on-one um, money counseling with people too, that those are some things like, like if you're in a spending mood, I want you to go into a store, don't spend anything, but just for like studying, like what does your body do? Does your heart race? Do you lick your lips? Does your mouth start to water? Do your hands sweat? Do you, you know, get excited. Like what are things that phys- like are happening to your body physically so that you can write these down and take note of them so that when you're not in such an alert mood of like, okay, I want to shop, these things can alert you that you're going to shop. Is that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds almost like exposure therapy, right? You have to, exactly. You have to get yourself in that situation and calm your body down and, and yep. see what you're feeling. Yep. When describing your book, The Recovering Spender, You say, through trial and failure, I curbed my spending addiction and set up boundaries to keep me safe from my spending. First, let's talk about some of those failures. Tell me about Mm -hmm. what didn't work when you first started this journey. Yeah. So what didn't work is I think that, and I see this a lot when people start learning how to budget is they get out, you know, they go and they buy all of these pretty markers and highlighters and stickers and planners and like all the things to get them to budget. Right. And then they spent all this money on budgeting stuff and then they never budget. You know, they, they get excited about the process and making it look pretty, but then they actually can't stick to the budget. I was totally in that, you know, mindset of like, Oh, I will get all the things and the planners and the stickers and like plan my, and all it did was distract me from the actual act of budgeting. So, um, that didn't work for me. So I just do things very, very simple. And I actually created a planner. It's called the personal finance planner. And it's a very simple planner that plans your days and your money in the same place. I created that back in 2015. And so I did that just to, for my own sanity, pretty much to make things simple. So that didn't work. Also, a lot of people are like, you need to spreadsheet your stuff. And I'm like, I tried that. That didn't work because I, I would break the spreadsheet all the time and not know how to fix it. So (laughs) I'm not, I'm not a spreadsheet person. I'm with, I'm with you on that one. (laughs) I'm more of like a pen and paper person. So um, sticking with pen and paper and just keeping things really, really simple is what works for me. So those are some things that did not work. Also, continuing to use my debit card while learning how to budget did not work. So I had to go to cash budgeting for a couple years to get the hang of it so that I knew like where I overspent and what my spending struggles were. By using cash, it was really easy for me to see like, oh my gosh, like I took out $600 for groceries this month and I'm like a week and a half in and it's all gone. Like I've got a I got to figure a different system out for this. So um, by doing 
those couple of things, I realized that I had some issues and were easily, they were easily fixable. Yeah. Those are the things that didn't work for me. It's funny how you mentioned this idea. The first thing you tried was to buy all the accoutrements mm-hmm. that would help you do this. And in a sense, I'm thinking that's kind of trying to spend your way into being what you want to be, which is exactly the problem in the first place. Exactly. And it, you know, it's, I think about like when people join the gym, right? They go and they buy all the new workout clothes because that's going to make them work out better. You know, or if somebody's going on a diet, they go and buy like all new pretty bowls or dishes or measuring cups or whatever. So yeah, no, I went and bought all the things to make me start budgeting and spend a ton of money and then (laughs) never used them. So I see it all the time, like in my courses, I'm like, stop buying stuff. Stop buying planners. Stop buying highlighters. Um, Just do it. Just stop distracting yourself. The first part of that quote about your book was about the failures. The second part was about boundaries. Tell me about some of those boundaries that you found you could set up for yourself that really protected you from spending when you shouldn't. Yeah. So in my book, I talk about this concept of having a fence around your money. And um, the idea of that is like, so I have, I'm a single mom of four kids and we have a fenced in backyard and my kids are older now, but when I wrote the book, they were like two, four, six, and 10. Now they're, most of them are teenagers. But so when I wrote the book, I was talking about this concept of the fact that like my kids can go and play in the backyard and there's a, it's a fenced in yard. So they're safe. So they can still go and play and have fun in the backyard, but there's just bound, there's a boundary. Like you can't go outside of this boundary. And so I think of budgeting as the same thing as, like that fence around my backyard, that a budget is there to keep my money and myself safe. That doesn't mean I can't have fun with it. That doesn't mean I don't have any room. And so I think a common misconception when you're starting to learn how to budget and you're starting to learn how to get out of debt is people just suck the life out of themselves. They take all the fun out of everything and they don't have fun. And then they get Budget it out, and then they just are like, "Screw it, I'm not doing this anymore." You know, I don't, I, I can't go out for drinks with my friends. You know, I'm, I, if I cook one more meal at home, I'm gonna like burn my kitchen down. Like, I, you know, I, all I want is a is a Starbucks latte, and I'll be happy. You know, so for me, it was a lot of balance. I'm gonna get out of debt, but I'm also gonna still budget the fun things in my life. So if that means that my debt payoff process is going to take me six months or a year longer, I'm okay with that because what it's going to do is going to keep me mentally in, a, in the game. So if that means I budget in $60 a month for a massage, I'm doing it. If that means that I budget in $5 a week to take myself out to Starbucks and sit there and read a book, I'm doing it. And so it's that whole concept of, yes, I'm going to have a fence around my money, just like my kids can play in their fence and be safe. I can play in my budget and be safe as well and, it, and, and still have fun and not just want to, you know, be strangled out of not having any fun with my money. I want to take that idea a step further. In 2010, you founded a frugal living website called IamThatLady.com. Is frugality the answer per se to all these problems? And I would would add in minimalism because I think Mm -hmm. they kind of fulfill that same purpose when it comes to budget and saving. 
Are we right in focusing on those things? Well, I think so. You know, when I took a financial course back when I was in a ton of debt, I found that the missing piece with that finance course was frugal living, was the simple day-to-day things that I'm doing every day that are going to keep me on the path to getting out of debt. And one of the biggest things was meal planning and learning how to save money on groceries and stop eating out. So that is huge. I mean, I, I, I have people that come into my courses that are spending two, $3,000 a month on food that I teach them how to get that down to like $500 a month. And you can do that immediately. Like now that's a, you know, $2,000 savings a month right off the bat. So there are things you can do right now, you know, phone calls you can make that can save you $500 a month off your bills in just five phone calls. And those are the things that I love to teach because they're huge light bulb moments for people of like, oh my goodness, like this isn't going to take me as long as I think it's going to. Because like you've helped me learn how to save on my bills, learn how to save on my groceries, taught me how to make extra cash, you know, those things that I thought this was going to take me 10 years, but now it might only take me two because, yes, you've taught me how to budget and pay down debt, but at the same time, you've also taught me all of these like frugal living ideas that I didn't even know were possible that have reduced my spending in half this every month. And that, it's like a, it's like, it's not an and or, but it's like do both and, and you'll make huge, huge dents in, in your debt and and in your financial future where you want to start investing. We're talking to Lauren Grootman. She helps busy moms create financial freedom for their families by sharing simple, easy ways to take back control of their money. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. 
After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to remind you, if you want to find out what is going on with the Earn and Invest podcast or me, Jordan Grummet, there are a few ways to get more information. One is that you can go to my personal website, jordangrummet.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T.com. There you'll find links to my medical blog, my financial blog, as well as the Earn and Invest podcast. You'll also learn what is the newest, latest, and greatest when it comes to my book, Taking Stock, which will be coming out August 2nd. We're going to make the push for early or pre-sales in July. You can find it on Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Nobles. You name it, you can find it there. And last but not least, visit us on Facebook. The best way to get there is earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. In our Facebook group, we discuss everything from personal finance to current events to what's happening in our world, as well as I post every episode there. So check us out. A few different ways to reach me, either at jordangrummet.com or at earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. I hope to see you there and become part of the Earn and Invest community. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Lauren Grootman. She is the author of The Recovering Spender, How to Live a Happy, Fulfilled, Debt-Free Life. Lauren, you describe your business as helping busy moms create financial freedom for their families. Talk about the unique position moms are in when it comes to debt addiction. I think the the unique thing that moms struggle with is a lot of times we're home alone with our kids right? We're home alone with our kids. We have limited social interaction. We are either working moms. So we're working during the day and then we come home and then we have to cook dinner and we're exhausted. And then we have to put the kids to bed and then we have to clean the house and then we have to do laundry. And then, you know, on the weekends we have sports and then we have to grocery shop and get more laundry. I mean, there's there's a laundry list of things that we always have to get done and we're exhausted and we're overwhelmed and we're stressed and throw debt into the mix of that and throw budgeting into the mix of that. And you can feel like you're drowning. You can feel like there's no hope to get out of the financial mess that you're in because you don't have time to figure it out. And so, um, With a lot of the women that I deal with, a lot of what I teach them is very specific planning of of how moms can do this on on a very short time budget as well. One of the things that I really focus on is teaching them how to do freezer cooking so they can get like 20 dinners in their freezer for the month and then throw those in the crock pot in the morning before work and then they come home and dinner's ready so that they don't have to stress about cooking because a lot of us, you know, on our way home from work, stop by and get takeout because we're too tired. We don't want to cook. We're exhausted. We have baseball practice or whatever. So those are a lot of the challenges that we as moms face. We're exhausted. We're overworked. We have kids. We are tired. We don't usually plan very well. 
and then we overspend and then we shop because it makes us feel better and it gives us something to do a lot of times when we don't have the social interaction that we really want with friends because we don't have time for friends. It seems like the burden of kind of home economics and home finances falls squarely on a mother's shoulder. Are are fathers not taking on this role also? I don't think, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I think that a lot of times the man handles finances, but the, the home life falls on the woman. So the cooking, the, cleaning, the grocery shopping, um, you know, those kind of home tasks seem to fall a lot more on the women's shoulders than on the man's shoulders. So I think with society the way that it is right now that I've, I've seen it kind of flip a little bit where there's more men being more responsible for other chores, but it definitely falls more on the women's shoulders, especially, you know, if the woman is a stay at home mom and doesn't work outside of the home. But there's also a lot of moms who are also doing, you know, working from home and working for other people. And so that makes the isolation even more, you know. And so there, there has to be a lot of communication between both partners so that one doesn't feel as down as the other one. You mentioned the isolation, and of course, that makes me think of the pandemic. How have the lives of the women who you counsel changed over the pandemic? Talk about kind of the positives and negatives. Well, I think the positives, I think uh, people learned that they have been able to live on less. I think that that's been a positive. I've seen a lot of people choose to stay home and work from home when given the option to go back to the office, which has really helped save on gas prices. People getting rid of two cars and going down to one because they don't need two vehicles anymore. I've seen people been able to pay down debt because they're not eating out, you know, grabbing coffee on the way to work and then eating out at lunch and then going out to happy hour. You know, they're cooking more at home. So those are some pluses that I've seen. Um, Some downsides of what I've seen is that people have gotten really lazy. They've learned (laughs) the luxury of DoorDash and Instacart and getting their food delivered to them. And they've really kind of adapted and accepted this culture of like not leaving their house. So everything gets delivered to them. And so that has increased their budgets because you're having to pay for delivery fees and then tipping people. And so it's they've realized the convenience of like they don't have to leave their house. And so I've seen that as well. So uh, it's kind of like both both sides, like it's good that they're staying home because they're not spending as much, but then they're also spending more money on getting things delivered to them. So it's it's been interesting to see how how people have adapted. I would ask the same for the great resignation. Do you think it's been empowering for women or has it caused more debt problems? I think it's caused more debt problems, to be honest. I think a lot of people have, you know, had some money issues losing losing employment and then being stuck at home 
it's been the one enjoyment that they've had is being able to shop and get a nice little Amazon package show up at their door. So I've had a lot more people coming through my courses um, as of late to clear up that debt and to get their finances back on track. As I think about the pandemic and the great resignation, one big question I think always comes to mind is, you know, we know that the world is changing. There have been some difficulties. We also know that we live in a very marketing focused world. You talk a lot about personal responsibility, but I'm wondering if you feel like ultimately change will come to us as a society more based on systemic change and political change about how we market to people and how we allow people to get into it versus is it more of a personal thing where you have to take control yourself for your own responsibilities? There's always going to be marketing. There's always going to be pushes for certain things. I feel like it really just comes down to personal responsibility and people having to take personal responsibility of their life and their choices because it's really an ultimate, it ultimately comes down to a very personal choice. And I mean, I know people that are in debt that they just don't care, you know, especially with the here in New York, they had an eviction ban for the past two years where people just didn't pay their rent and they got away with it for two years and people were fine with that. And then, you know, the government just extended the student loan payoff deferment again. So there's people that aren't even having to pay off their student loans continuously, you know? So there, it just, I know people that just don't care that they're in debt. And then I know people that it literally keeps them up at night. So it's base, It's all about personal responsibility and what, what people can live with and what they can't live with. I mean, I can market to somebody till they're blue in the face and they won't buy it. And I can market to somebody once and they'll buy it. So you know what I mean? Like it, It's just based on personal responsibility. When it comes to personal responsibility, we often talk <laughs> about this idea of good versus bad debt. I, I know a lot of people, for instance, will say a house could be good debt, um, whereas you know, spending too much on a car could be bad debt. Let's talk about college. I mean, a lot of people are still paying off their own college debts as adults. And then as parents, we worry about paying for our children's college. Does it make sense to go into debt for some of these things in the first place? Well, I think it depends on what you're going to school for. If you know you're, if you know what you're going to school for and you know that what you're going to school for is going to allow you the income to pay off that debt, then yeah, go for it. My oldest son is a junior in high school, so he's almost 17. And so we're having these conversations right now. Um, and you said your oldest is 17 as yes, well, right? Yes, exactly. So you might be Junior having year. going through the same, yep, mm-hmm. same conversations. So the conversations look like this for us. Do you know what you want to be? No. Okay. So we know him and we still want him to get a college education as far as the prerequisites go, because we, we think him taking a gap year with just knowing him we don't think that that would be good for him because we think he'll just get lazy and like not ever do anything. So for us, we're, we're encouraging him to go to community college locally and do his prerequisites to see if any of those prerequisites stir an interest in him to get him to see what he wants to do. Okay. That's the goal for him because he doesn't know what he wants to do. 
and knowing him, we don't think it's a good thing for him to take a break because I think he'll just get lazy. That's just like his personality, right? Now, my other daughter wants to be a teacher. So when she's ready to go, she has a very clear path. This is how you become a teacher. So you go to school, still not an expensive school, like you're going to go to a state school of New York, you know, and um, we want you to live at home the first couple of years to not go into debt. It's interesting. And I don't know if it's because I'm a financial educator and I talk to them about this stuff, but it seems to me like the generation that I'm raising is very well aware of the student loan crisis. They all like know about it. And they're it it it's it's something that's talked about in their social circle. They're all very well aware that they don't want to go into student loan debt. And I think it's they they're learning from the previous generation. So I don't know. That's kind of my take. If you know exactly what you want to do and there's a clear path to get there, then go. But also, you know, there's things to apply for and grants and loans and think of other ways to live off campus and, you know, cheaper ways to do things. So so that's my take on it. If I am a big fan of the trades, of going into trades after after school, working, getting, you know, maybe doing an apprenticeship with like the carpenters union or becoming an electrician or something like that. I'm a huge fan of that. That's yeah. That's kind of my feeling and take on that. You were mentioning that kids today seem more aware of the college debt crisis. Do you think there's a generational thing going on here? Like I'm a Gen Xer. I know the baby boomers and Gen Xers had kind of specific ideas about spending in debt. Do you think millennials and Gen Zers are maybe a little more aware? Oh, definitely. I've seen a lot of a lot of amazing conversations of of millennials. Yeah, totally. It it's interesting to see my son's generation and even people in their 20s, they seem to be very well aware of the financial issues going on in, in this world. And I've heard from other other parents who are maybe, I'm 41, so like I've heard of like parents had conversations with people like in their mid-50s who were like, oh, these kids growing up. I'm like, no, 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 these kids are smart. Like these are smart kids. And I, you know, I see, I see that they're smart and they're learning from the mistakes of others. And and they're talking about like important topics that I didn't talk about when I was 16. I didn't know anything about student loan debt, but my son and all of his friends, they, they're very well aware of student loan debt. They don't want to get into it. They're all trying to make a better decision for themselves. They all kind of want to go to community college and not go into debt. And so it's very interesting to see the generational Stuff And again, sometimes I think, oh, maybe it's because I'm a financial educator, but I'm like, but I haven't been talking to his friends. So like, it, it can't just be me. Yeah, I, I find that that my <clears throat> children's generation is a little bit more sensitive to the debt issue. Mm-hmm. And, and I think they're also aware of the fact that the promise of going to a good college, spending a lot of money on it, then in order to make a lot of money is somewhat of a false prophecy in the sense that there are lots of different ways to educate yourself today. Some are more expensive than others, but Mm -hmm. that your ability to make or not make money may not be as related to the name on your college diploma as, as we all thought it did. Exactly. Exactly. So Lauren, there are probably a lot of people listening right now who are identifying with what we've talked about. They see themselves kind of losing this battle with debt. 
What do you think the first step is for them to take? Well, the first thing is for them to figure out how much debt they're in and be really honest with themselves. It's kind of like getting on a scale before you go on a diet, right? Get get honest. Let's let's see the real picture about what's going on. And then, you know, if you're in a relationship, getting honest with that other person is very critical as well. And then I think finding somebody to talk to about it, finding um, a course to go through or a financial professional. There's a lot of financial therapists. That's a big common thing that's coming out now. Financial therapy is becoming a very big industry because people are seeing that spending issues aren't just about money. It goes so much deeper than that. And then I would try to, you know, set a budget and and think about and, and give yourself some grace. You know, I think one of the things that I wish that I had known when I started on my journey to financial freedom was that it's going to take three to six months to figure out how to get this to stick. But I think that if people can just kind of get on that financial scale first and and take a good look and good picture at where they're at, they're going to they're going to be in a better spot. It might be painful, but at least they have a starting point. I'm going to give you a chance in a minute to talk about your own platform. But before we do, are there some good kind of beginning online resources if you find yourself kind of at, at the start of this journey? Yeah, um, I love there's a there's an app called the Cube app. Q-U-B-E. Um, it's like $7 a month, I believe. But it's like a, it's a really awesome cash budgeting app. So it mimics cash budgeting and it's um, you can put your money, you know, right from your bank account into the app and it gives you a debit card. So I love that. Um, There's also another uh, cash budgeting app called YNAB. That's another one that's really popular. Google has a free Google budgeting spreadsheet that you can just Google, (laughs) Google, Google budgeting spreadsheet. And it's a free budgeting spreadsheet that you can use um, it's in Google Sheets. You can't break it, which I like because, <laughs> like, we already talked about breaking spreadsheets. So, so those are some some really cool resources out there. And then, you know, there's so many. I mean, I have a YouTube channel, but there's so many great YouTubers out there that can help you get back on track and free resources and printables and things like that. Let's talk about your podcast. Tell us about the Hard Money Talks podcast. Yeah. So the Hard Money Talks podcast um, is a podcast that talks about all the difficult money conversations that nobody wants to talk about. So um, I started that podcast. Actually, I do a lot of national television. So I was on uh, with Rachel Ray a couple months ago, and we were doing a segment called Dollar Diaries with our viewer. And we were talking about some pretty hard stuff. And during the break, you know, Rachel was like, Lauren, you got to like talk more about this because you're so good at this. And I was like, you know what? You, I probably should. And so I actually started the podcast after... Um, me and Rachel were sitting down and talking about that, and it's in its second season. And um, so far, I, you know, I've I've covered topics like financial infidelity. I've covered topics on financial abuse, taboo ways to make an income. I've talked about um, gambling addiction. I've talked about losing your job and what to do when that happens. I've talked about financial trauma as a child. So. I talk about like the really difficult conversations that people don't want to talk about because a lot of times money secrets and shame just continue to keep us sick. So I'm trying to get the hardest money topics on there that I can talk about so that people 
maybe feel less shameful so they can come out and, and deal with their issues. Lauren, I wanted to thank you for being on the show. You mentioned feeling a sense of guilt around money or shame. And certainly, I think sometimes we try to use spending as a way to allay some of those bad feelings. But in the end, we actually feel worse than we started. I wanted to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where we can reach out to you if we want to learn more. First and foremost, what is going on with you in the near future? Yeah. So in the near future, I'm actually working on my second book right now, which is called Addicted to More. Um, and that is scheduled to come out in September of 2023. Um, and so I'm excited for that and just continuing to work on my podcast, The Hard Money Talk Show. You know, we'll continue to do my work on laurengrootman.com. And I have a YouTube channel. I'm on Instagram, TikTok, um, all of those kind of things. So yeah. So that's what I'll continue to be doing is just sharing the love of personal finance and frugal living with everybody that will listen. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Lauren Grootman. That's a wrap. Awesome. Thank you so much. Awesome. I usually keep things rolling just because um, usually I include a little after show. Um, Very cool. Uh, You, of course, are welcome to come on as your next book gets towards launch time. And I'll be happy to have you on to talk about it. I love this juxtaposition of your life prior to being a financial expert and your current life um, Mm -hmm. because the parallels are huge. I mean, there's no question about it in my mind uh, that spending is an addictive process. And I like this idea you were talking about how I I talk a lot about treadmills, right? We talk about the hedonic treadmill, right? So we buy things to make (laughs) us happy and then we end up wanting to buy more and more and more to make us happy. But I I think achievement is like that and other things, like we have these things we keep on doing that we think are going to make us happy and they just make us want more and do more. Mm -hmm. And um, you you talked about that at the beginning of the interview and I I definitely connect with that sentiment. Yep, yep. It definitely, you know, a lot lot of the... I've recognized a lot of that in my own personal life. You know, the whole addicted to more, addicted to work, addicted to achievements, addicted to whatever, anything I can do more, more, more. And it wasn't until probably the past five or six years where I've just like learning to be content with where I'm at and being okay with where I'm at and being safe with where I'm at is such a beautiful thing. And a lot of people don't get to that spot in their life where it's just like, whatever, like I'm cool with where I'm at, you know? Um, and so I'm excited for that book to come out. I mean, it'll have a big financial component to it, but it'll also just have a life component to it. And I think, um, especially in the financial dependence, retire early or fire community, people don't realize we get addicted to saving actually, right? We get addicted to making money. We get addicted to having a high net worth. We get addicted to all these things and it can be just as destructive. Mm -hmm. Um, because you use, I mean, my theory and I, I just, I'm publishing a book myself kind of as my, as being a hospice doctor and what it's taught me about money and life. Mm -hmm. And one thing I think we really do is 
we concentrate on those things because it's much easier and much more defined than the much harder things like is who we are and what brings us a sense of purpose and what do we want in life. And and because I work with the dying as a hospice doctor, um, a lot of times I think it's our fear of death such that we're afraid to face that we may have these big ideas or life plans and that we have a finite time to reach them. And that Mm -hmm. scares the heck out of us. So in a lot of ways, we just concentrate on the much lower hanging fruit. So for people in the fire community, I think a lot of us really focus on money because it's just, it's there, right? They're, They're obvious answers, right? You make more, you save more, you do a side hustle, right? You can pick mm-hmm. out all these plans of, of how to get where you want to be. It's a lot easier to do that than say, well, who am I? And, and what's my legacy? And what, what do I want to leave in this world? And how do I want to affect people? That's a much harder conversation. It is. And you know what? Like I'm, I'm one of the keynotes at FinCon this year. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, that's what my talk is really going to be about is about how I was so focused on my career back in 2015, 2016, like when my book came out and then I got divorced in 2017 and it was like, oh my gosh, like I have been working 80, 90 hours a week and I, my life just came crashing down and now I have to like completely regroup and what's important. Yeah. You know, what's important. And I see that in the fire movement a lot of like, we're going to work and hustle and do so much. I'm going to work 100 hours a week and then I'm going to retire when I'm 40. And it's like, but then you lose like 10 years of your life that you can't get back yeah. to yeah. retire and then do. And then right. I see so many people after they retire and get depressed lost. and bored right. out of their yep. minds. Yep. And then yep. they go and work for somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. You and know? and, and, and like, then they start again as opposed right. to actually saying, okay, well, what do I really want out of life or what makes me happy? Or yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's, um, um, Thing, things I think a lot about a lot <laughs> and yeah. have, because I was in that position. I was a physician who, um, you know, realized I didn't like being a doctor and did lots and lots of work to make money so I could be financially independent. And then kind of when all of a sudden one day I realized I was there, it was actually one of the scariest moments for me because I was like, okay, wow. I've built up all these resources, but how do I want to now utilize these resources? Like how, who do I want to be? What do I want to do with myself, et cetera. And it actually started a period of, of real depression and anxiety that, that mm-hmm. lasted, you know, for a while and actually ended up, you know, from that point on, I transitioned my life completely, like went from working full-time as a physician to working very, very part-time in hospice and doing much more of these kind of things. But um, yeah, they're interesting conversations. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.